Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the Word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer to ask his guidance and direction on our study. Father, you revealed yourself to us in your word down through the centuries from the initial writings of the Pentateuch in the 15th century B.C. all the way up to the culmination, the completion of the New Testament canon in approximately A.D. 95. Father, in this word, you have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed to us who we are. You have revealed to us the problem that we have with you in terms of sin and how you have resolved the sin problem. Your word is designed to teach us, to train us, to think as you think, and to understand creation and all aspects of creation as you have, uh, as you have created them and as you have intended them to be. And our process of, of study is to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our thinking that we may grow and mature as, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and accurately think about your creation as you have created it. Fathers, we study your word, we are impressed with your magnificence, with your immensity, with your omnipotence and omniscience. Father, you are so much larger, more infinite than anything we can possibly comprehend, yet we often fall into the trap of, of thinking that somehow we really understand your ways and your purposes. We do understand them as they have been revealed in your word, but not always as they are working their way out in our lives. Father, we pray that as we study the Word this morning that we may come to a greater understanding of who you are, understanding of your plan, understanding of just how we need to be oriented to your plan, that you might be glorified. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in 2 Kings chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 3, while you're turning there, I want to thank those of you who were praying for me on this trip this last week, praying for my health because I came back healthy. I didn't catch anything on the airplane which is sort of standard operating procedure. But it was, a, um, it, was a, it was an interesting trip. There were various coincidences, like there was this guy sitting up in first class on the flight to Atlanta named Preston Wooten, a name familiar to some of you. And so we were able to have dinner together between flights in, uh, in Atlanta. And then I was on the next leg. I sat next to a guy who's on the board of tracks. Tra- I don't 
I forget what the acronym stands for, but TRACS is one of two seminary accrediting uh, organizations, and uh, he was uh, a couple of years older uh, than I am, and so uh, we had an interesting conversation about how evangelicalism has declined. He's got his degree from Talbot and was there before it deteriorated when men like Robert Thomas were still uh, teaching at Talbot. And so we had a, a great conversation. And on the way back, I sat next to a guy who uh, works for, travels a lot, works for a firm that handles uh, the computerization of programs for the MLS services. And I sat down in my seat next to the window and opened my Bible to read through Second Kings 3, start thinking about this morning. And he just looked over at me and started quoting Scripture. <laughs> and I thought, well, I got a, one of those religious Baptist nutcases next to me or something. He was a great guy. We had a great conversation. He was flying flying to Houston, and so we spent time together almost all the way here, except uh, uh, he was in first class coming back. back. I kept getting separated from people by that uh, uh, distinction between steerage and first class, but somehow I still managed to survive. There were only 30 of us back in steerage on the way from Atlanta, so we each had our own row, so that was that was comfortable, and I got to spread out. But it was a good opportunity to uh, talk to different people on the way, and then while I was there, I was invited by Tommy Ice to speak to his uh, class, an elective class he's teaching this semester on Christian Zionism. Uh, that's the class, and he wanted me to take the material that I had taught in the Israel Past, Present, and Future series here, where I was showing how through the 19th century you had uh, different things happening in different spheres, the political economic sphere in Germany, uh, Russia, England, and some of the other uh, European countries, things that were happening separately with no knowledge of, of that sphere within the Jewish sphere as the rabbis for the first time in, in about 1,800 years were saying that Jews could return to the land without the uh, prior return of the Messiah, a major shift in their thinking. And then at the same time, you had a groundswell of interest in Jewish evangelism, especially in England, but also in other areas of the continent that were were supportive of Jews having their their own nation in their own homeland. It was just part of the rise of nationalism throughout Europe in the 19th century as Czechs and Poles and Germans and uh, Italians were seeking to unite their nations within their historic uh, homelands and establish their own nations. So, too, the Jews wanted to establish their own. Some people today seem to think that Zionism is some uh, wicked, evil plot or that somehow those nasty dispensationalists uh, are just trying to uh, cause prophecy to seem to be fulfilling. But dispensationalists had nothing to do with Christian Zionism in the 19th century. They were in favor of the Jews having their homeland, of course, but they were a fringe element and not at all involved in the political uh, or social action sphere in England uh, whatsoever. And so this was generated by uh, Anglicans who in the 19th century were, for the most part, premillennial and thus had a, had a love for the Jews. So I gave that lecture. When I got there, had lunch with Ed Heinsohn and Randy Price, heard a lot about his ARC trip, and I'll give another report on that Tuesday night. Um, 
Randy and Ed Heinsohn, and so Ed found out I was going to be there, so he wanted to know if I would teach in two of his classes. He had a Daniel class in the morning and a Revelation class in the afternoon, so I gave the same lecture in both of those classes. And then Tommy had uh, departed after the first class that day to go speak at a conference with uh, Norm Geisler down in uh, North Carolina, and so I taught his Nahum class that afternoon. So it was a busy day on on uh, on Tuesday, but it was uh, very enjoyable. And no, nobody's asking me to come teach at Liberty. I'm not there looking for a job. I will be dragged by fiery chariots across the borders of Texas again if God wants me to move. So <laughs> you can take that to the bank, okay? That's a great school, though. If you are a parent and you are thinking about your, your child's future and where they're going to school, I am becoming more and more convinced that if you want your children, your teenagers, to uh, be turned against everything that you have taught them, then the best way to do that is send them to a secular state school or private school that is not grounded in the Word of God. If you want your children to go someplace where all that you have taught them will be reinforced by uh, those who hold the same beliefs, then you can send them to some place like Liberty. Uh, Cedar of Liberty has 12,000 students. It is a, it has uh, nine or more uh, NCAA sports. It has a graduate uh, uh, graduate law school that is excellent. It has a uh, business graduate school. It has a seminary. It has a number of other things. They are they are. It, it's it's the campus is beautiful. Just incredible at the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in Lynchburg, Virginia. It's not because they used to lynch people there. There was a man who initially founded the town whose name was Lynch. And he was not one who lynched people either. So uh, they even have a man-made ski slope with this uh, new fabric that's like the, the the bottom part of a of a, a piece of Velcro, the, the stiff part that has the little plastic little hook that comes up. And yet it, it's a little thicker, and it sits on about a two-inch pad. And you keep it moist. They have these uh, misting sprinklers around. And and from what I was told. It handles better than artificial snow. It's it's more like real snow than artificial snow. And so I'm looking forward to the time when we're going to be skiing the overpass at uh, 610 or someplace like that because this will work in warm, any weather, any climate, they can build their own. This is only the second ski slope of this type in the U.S., and it is the it is for the university. It is their ski slope. There's about eight or nine in in uh, uh, in Europe. So we'll be skiing the hill country of Texas before long, I'm sure, as entrepreneurs get a hold of this, and we won't have to go spend our money some out-of-state out of pagan place like Colorado when we go, or Utah when we go skiing. All right. We had, in other words, I had a great time. I'll give a little more detail on Tuesday night, but the Liberty University certainly bears investigating. Someone said, well, aren't they a little legalistic? Well, where would you rather have your children going? To a school where the professors, as one professor did with a uh, uh, young woman who came out of Preston City, went to UConn. In her first day of a women's studies class, she came back. She said, she said, Robbie, by the end of the class, the teacher had identified every evangelical in the class and began to attack them in their beliefs. And this girl was told that if you don't get away from that pastor of yours, just generally speaking, not me, you'll never learn what it means to be a woman. 
So if you want your children singled out like that, this girl's sister went off to another school and left after the first semester because every night when she'd come back to her room, her roommate was in bed with another boy. So if you want your children going to places like that in order to prepare them for adulthood, then um, that's your decision. But you can send them to a place that's got a little bit of legalism. And uh, they might even learn some good good morality and principles, so uh, which is the better place that 's your decision okay we 're in second kings chapter three, second kings chapter three, and one thing that you should be aware of I, I encourage you to read through second kings as we as we study and as we look at the coming chapters, we will see that there are some rather odd and unusual things that are taking place there 's a metal uh, axe head that's going to float in the uh, coming chapters there we've already seen fire coming down from heaven to incinerate a couple of uh, troops of uh, soldiers sent from uh, uh, to, sent to uh, gather up Elisha from Ahaziah and we saw that uh, some after these young juvenile delinquents abused Elisha uh, in the last chapter, he pronounced a curse on them, and these two bears came out of the woods and mauled these uh, 42 youths. And so there's some rather unusual things that happen in this section. And it means that we have to really pay attention to what's there. I would suggest that if most of you had read through these chapters, or as you read through the coming chapters, uh, as you think about what goes on, you're probably scratching your head thinking, this is really bizarre behavior going on here. What in the world does this, this mean? This is just so odd and unusual with all of these various miracles. There's about 18 different miracles that are performed by Elisha in these sections, and there's some just some unusual things. And so whenever we run into something unusual or unexpected, as we read through the Scripture, we need to stop and really think about why is this going on, because those kinds of twists in the story, and these stories are told very well, and they are designed to capture our attention and to think about what's going on there, uh, it will it, it will surprise us. So as we think through these things and we see those twists and turns and surprise endings, then we need to stop and think, okay, what's really going on here? The Word of God is not pablum. When God gave revelation, he didn't put the Word of God down on the lowest shelf. That's the uh, sort of the popular approach today among many churches and many Bible teachers is to try to bring everything down to the to the bottom shelf. But when you do that, you miss the sophisticated material and the in-depth doctrine that is really in the Scripture. Uh, the Scripture is designed to cause us to uh, reflect upon it. God doesn't give us easy answers. He's not just uh, going to lay things out in a basic first-grade primer so that when we read it, we immediately say, oh, I understand God, I have a firm grasp on Scripture, and then move on down the road. By 
writing the scripture and revealing it the way he has, it forces us to constantly go back again and again and again to probe it, to question it, to think about it, to reflect upon it. And each time we do, we see different things. We're amazed by what we read that we thought we were familiar with, and now we see something new in the story that we never saw before, and we can never just really plumb the depths of Scripture because of its uh, complexity. It, it functions at a lot of different levels, and I don't mean that in the sense of different levels of meaning, but there are all of these different uh, things that are going on in the Scripture that you don't pick up on the first, second, third, or even the 20th time that you uh, that any of us read through the text. But one of the things that we see that dominates this section of Scripture is the theme of the power and the immensity of God. As I, we started into the section back in the end of First Kings, I played the clip for you from the end of the, uh, of the film, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where uh, young Lucy is talking to, in the film, it is the... Um, uh, the, the little elf-like creature, but in the book it's, uh, it's the beaver. And she's wondering why Aslan, the god figure, is leaving. And the response is that, uh, well, he's not a tame lion. She's saying, when can we expect him back? Why doesn't, he? in essence, what she's saying is, why doesn't he do what I think he ought to do? And the answer is because he's not a tame lion. And Lucy says, but he is good, isn't he? And that really defines what's going on in these chapters because God is a good and righteous God. He is true to his covenant with Israel. And so he is going to behave toward Israel in a manner that is totally consistent and faithful with what he has said in his covenant. And in the same way, God is just as true to his word towards each one of us so that we can always count on him to do that which is right, that which is just, and that which conforms to his word. But it's not always what we expect. In fact, God often surprises us. Just as we think we have a handle on God's plan and purposes and what he's doing on our life, suddenly everything turns topsy-turvy and we get surprised, and God is the God of surprises, and that's what happens in many of these episodes in Kings, and it certainly happens in this episode. It's probably going to take two weeks to go through this, so I'm going to want to give you a little summary at the beginning. What we have is a situation in Israel where the northern kingdom has gone through a a power change. First, Ahab died back in 1 Kings 22. Uh, then his his uh, son, uh, Azariah, uh, Ahaziah, comes to the throne. He's not on the throne more than two years, probably about a year and a half. And then he dies under divine discipline. And then his brother, Jehoram, comes to the throne. Remember, these are all part of the Amrid dynasty. Omri was the father of Ahab. 
and he led them further into idolatry. He was the one who brought about this arranged marriage between Ahab and Jezebel, bringing uh, the most evil, pernicious, uh, perverted religion known to man into the northern kingdom, the worship of Baal. And so things deteriorated into just rank degeneracy in the northern kingdom. Uh, the perversion in the United States is quickly approaching that level, so it'll be interesting to see how God brings discipline upon us. But in that day, he brought discipline through through the leaders. And so he disciplines Ahab, he disciplines uh, Ahaziah, and then uh, his brother becomes the king. But his brother seems to have learned something, not much, something. He's not as evil as the others, but evil's a relative term, and he's still evil in the sight of the Lord. He just has realized that Baal doesn't do anything. He's been defeated at uh, Mount Carmel. He's been defeated by uh, uh, when uh, his brother sought to get healing from the Baal of Ekron. Uh, he was defeated again by Elijah, so he backs off of that, and he just follows in the perversion of the uh, of the northern kingdom in the idolatry brought in by Jeroboam I. So with all of this turmoil in the leadership of the northern kingdom, Moab decides to revolt. Now, Moab is a vassal kingdom to the southeast of Judah across the Dead Sea, and they have been held in a position of of oppression by the northern kingdom of Israel for uh, a number of years since the time of Omri, and they have been paying this oppressive tribute every year, and now they want to get out from under the thumb of the uh, king of the uh, northern kingdom and so they revolt they 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 quit paying their taxes quit paying their tribute and so Jer- uh Jehoram otherwise he, in other passages he's known as Joram because there's a Jehoram in the southern kingdom so we'll get confused over that I'm sure but this Jehoram decides to put together an alliance of kings, and so we have the three kings come together, and he talks to Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat throws in with him 100%, and then they get the king of Edom, who is another a vassal of, of uh, probably Judah at this time, and they are going to raise an army and attack the king of Moab. And as they do this, they they come up on this strategy to head around the southern tip of of the Dead Sea through the Negev, which for those of you who have been there, that's down there north of Elat. And you remember that that nice Chiraco wind we faced when we'd walked back across from Jordan. It was the temperature was about 120 with a wind chill of 140. It was like walking into a hairdryer. And that area down there, the Aravah, the Negev, is extremely dry and parched, and there's just no water. But they decided to go across that land, and after seven days of no water, they're all about to die. Their animals are about to die of thirst. They're about to die of thirst, and finally somebody got the great idea, well, let's see what God has to say. Let's see if there's a prophet among us. And, of course, um, Jehoram initially says, well, God just wants to kill us all. You know, typical carnal believer or unbeliever mentality, it's all God's fault. I made the bad decisions, but let's blame God. And so they they come across the uh, Negev, and uh, they find that Elisha is among the uh, those who are following the army with the army. They ask him for the word of God, and he gives a pronouncement 
It's really interesting, this, this pronouncement, because we have to decide if Elijah is telling them what to do or if, uh, excuse me, Elisha is telling them what to do or if Elisha is simply stating what they will do. That's a big difference. Is he telling them what they are to do or is he just telling them what they will do even though it's not the right thing to do? So, we have that episode, and then God miraculously provides water for them. And as the enemy, as the king of Moab, comes against them, and he sees this water on the ground that God has provided, it looks to them like it's blood, and they jump to the conclusion that these three kings have fallen out amongst themselves and massacred one another. And so this is a great opportunity for them to take advantage of the turmoil in the camp of the of, of the Israelites and, and uh, the others and to attack them and defeat them. And as they charge into the camp, in fact, they are charging into an ambush and they get uh, pretty much wiped out. And then there is just this slaughter as the uh, troops of Judah and Israel and Edom pursue them back up uh, north through Moab until they come to the central city in Moab. And then we come into a really interesting scenario because the king of Moab is about to face defeat, and so he is going to pull out his last possible maneuver to manipulate their god, Chemosh, into giving them victory. And so he brings his oldest son up onto the ramparts, up onto the wall around the city, and he sacrifices him as an ola, as a burnt offering. You know, the height of paganism, and that's described in... in um, uh, down towards the end of the chapter, and then uh, verse 27, and then the most unusual thing happens at the last part of the verse. This is where it surprises us because we are led to believe up to this point that God is with the armies of Israel and Judah and is going to give them victory. And then there's this sacrifice of the eldest son on the wall of the city, and we read in the last part, and there was great wrath against Israel, so they departed from him and returned to their own land. So it sounds as if Israel has been defeated, and it is because the king of Moab, Misha, has sacrificed his eldest son on the wall, and that Yahweh is now in defeat. Interesting little scenario. A lot of problems in that verse. It's, it's a surprise ending, and that ought to capture our attention and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, this, this isn't what I expected. I expected this great victory like at Ai uh, after they had uh, confessed their sins or at, at Jericho. But what happens is that it seems that with the sacrifice of this uh, eldest son that the god of the pagans is motivated to give them victory and they defeat Israel. That just doesn't seem right. What's going on here? Well, we'll figure that out next week because we won't get that far this time. But that at least gives you a little hook, so you'll be back next week. So what's going on here? At the very root of this is a perverted and limited view of God that, that not only plagues the Jehoram in the north, but also is a problem that Jehoshaphat faces, and it's a problem that many of us face. 
And that is a problem to borrow the title of J.B. Phillips' book, Your God is Too Small. It's a problem that many people have is that, that we have our God somewhat restricted. We've read the scriptures. We think that because we can list ten attributes of God, we can articulate a definition of the Trinity. We have read through scripture. We ha- understand a lot of the patterns and principles that we see in scripture that somehow we really have a handle on God and how he works in history and how he works in our lives. And then things happen in our lives that don't fit that pattern, and we either are humbled by that so that we go back to the Scriptures and we seek wisdom and guidance from the Word, or we become arrogant and we say, why has God caused all this to happen to me, and why does God hate me, and why is God bringing this about in my life? And the reason is is that we just have too shallow, too narrow, too limited an image in our heads of who God is. We have finite imaginations that create a finite, limited uh, view of God that actually becomes a mental idol. And we all have certain conceptions or images of God in our heads, and that the more you study the Scripture, the more you read things, the more this image that you have ought to be exploded, because God doesn't necessarily fit a paradigm. He doesn't necessarily operate according to a formula. God is above that. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't know God uh, truly and certainly to a certain level. As he has revealed himself in the word, we can know that to be true. He doesn't contradict what he has revealed about himself. Uh, He is a God who is faithful and true. But there is so much more to God than we can possibly understand or comprehend, and there is so much more to his plan that we can uh, comprehend or understand. One of the things that bothers me that I hear a lot from people today is that they think that, that because of the world situation, because of various threats that are going on, that they have almost assumed that the rapture is going to occur before they die. I'm sure Dr. John Walbert believed that uh, the Lord would return before he died, but he's with the Lord in heaven now, and Jesus hasn't returned at the rapture yet. There are many scenarios that could take place on this earth, and the rapture may not occur for 200 years. And yet I find believers who, even though they know in one level that the Lord may not return for 200 years, they too often inadvertently and subtly make decisions in their life as if, well, the Lord's going to come back. They don't really need all that life insurance. They don't really need to prepare as if uh, they're going to reach their 80s and have to deal with living in a nursing home or their children are going to have to uh, take care of them when they reach that age or that they're going to have to provide an, or should provide an inheritance for their children or family because, after all, we all know the Lord's going to come back pretty soon. But we don't know that. That's just a guess. Uh, and your guess may be wrong. There have been thousands, tens of thousands of well-trained pastors and theologians who have thought Jesus would return in their generation, and he still hasn't returned. Paul thought that. 
the Lord still hasn't come back at the rapture. So we need to learn to live each day as if Jesus is going to come back tomorrow in terms of accountability, and we need to plan for the future as if Jesus isn't going to come back for another thousand years. And a lot of people don't know how to maintain uh, that tension because their God is too small. In Philip's book, Your God is Too Small, he identifies several of the false images that people have of God, that he's the resident policeman. He's sort of up there, you know, taking care of this problem and that problem like a, like the neighborhood cop. Or he, he calls it the parental hangover. They just look at God as if he's a larger image of their parents. And so he's up there to kind of scold them if they're wrong and to give them good presence if they behave well. Others have the rather uh, impotent image of God as just an old man. He's just this kind old figure sitting up there in heaven with a long white beard, something close to Santa Claus, who is uh, easily swayed by uh, their simple attempts at manipulation. Then there's folks who have a sort of a God-in-a-box mentality. They have a very limited view of God and that he always operates a certain way. They almost have a mechanistic, formulaic view of God in the way he operates in history and in their lives. Then there are those who have sort of the wimpy, uh, feminist view of Jesus, the pale Galilean view, that Jesus is all about peace and love and gentleness And after all, he said, turn the other cheek, didn't he? Of course, David has addressed that the last uh, couple of weeks, a couple of times I've been gone, that that really isn't what that text indicates. It's not about pacifism. It is about not taking, easily taking offense when one has been, uh, one has been insulted. They did not have a problem in ancient Israel of people running around slapping each other. So when Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek, it's not to be understood in a in a truly literal uh, sort of sense. It had to do with a figure of speech that was understood at that time. And then we have people who have sort of a projected image of God. This is kind of what Charlie Clough talks about in some of his lessons in the framework. It's people who just have a view of God, and he's just sort of a super Man, he's just uh, like a big, you know, blow-up doll. He's just bigger and better than every human being, but he's just a an enlarged human, and he has uh, all these frailties and limitations. And then there's sort of the deist view of God as the managing director, that he's just sort of up there, and every now and then he pays attention and says, oh, well, maybe I need to fix this or change that or whatever. But he's he's sort of an absentee. Uh, landlord. There's lots of different ways in which people limit God. We can limit him by our own theology because we think that what we understand, as correct as it may be, that somehow we have a comprehensive and exhaustive understanding of God. We can never have and never will have a comprehensive and exhaustive view of God because we have finite minds. We will never have an infinite mind. Even a billion years into eternity future, we will still have a finite mind, and we will still be learning things about God that surprise us. And we're just beginning to learn that in our own lives now. So the basic problem that we see underlying this passage is the problem of the creature who seeks to uh, invent 
his own view of God, and then he begins to worship that. That's the essence of idolatry. And whether it is an external idol uh, made out of wood or metal or gold, or whether it is an in- internal image that we have, and many people have generated these really odd images of Jesus that they worship, they're not really worshiping the Jesus of the Gospels. They're not worshiping the God of the Bible because God is so much grander, so much larger. He's infinite. Uh, we, we, can, we can't even grasp infinity, but God is infinite. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. We know those words. We understand the definitions that God has all knowledge. But when you start thinking about what that means in terms of extrapolating all of the uh, potential, all of the options, all of the things that could have happened, all of these things God knows. He knows what would have happened if Sodom had repented, if uh, Tyre and Sidon had uh, repented. He knows what would have happened if he had performed certain things a different way. He knows all of the alternatives as the as the philosophers put it, he knows all of the factuals and all of the counterfactuals. So God is beyond our wildest imagination, but we can still know him. We can know him truly as he is, but we have to watch that we don't fall into the same trap that we find here, the trap of thinking that we really control uh, we control God. You cannot reduce God uh, <clears throat> to some sort of formula. Now, as we get into the chapter, the first thing we see in the first three verses is a summary evaluation of the reign of the not-quite-so-evil Jehoram, and that's covered in the first three verses. We read now, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, so immediately when you hear that, you ought to hear the basso profundo vibrating in the background because he is the the paradigm of evil in the in ancient Israel. So as soon as you read that, you ought to think this: there's nothing good coming from the loins of Ahab. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Now, in the way the narrative unfolds in First and Second Kings, we really haven't studied the reign of Jehoshaphat yet. We get into Jehoram, Ahab, and Jehoram first, where there is. Uh, discussion about things that happen later in Jehoshaphat's reign. But Jehoshaphat is a good king in the southern kingdom. He is a king who instituted various reforms, and he is a king that is, uh, that is walking with God. He is, except he makes mistakes like we all do, including getting aligned with pagan, uh, pagan unbelievers. Um, I'm running into a little problem on my computer. Uh, Morgan, if you'd run back and look, I think I left it in the in the conference room, the end of the table. There's a power cord that's probably plugged in back there. If you'd bring that to me, I can get uh, plugged in again. Okay, so he and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, he's he reigned for twelve years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is God's uh, report card on. Uh, on Jehoram. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother, who's his mother, Jezebel. So he is not going to be involved in the fertility cult as they were, but because that was pretty much disproven by the ministry of Elisha, both at Mount Carmel and in the episode that was just covered in the, uh, in the first chapter. So he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, 
who had made Israel sin, he did not depart from them. Now, from the outset here, we see that the tone for Jehoram is negative. God never blesses the house of Omri. He is not going to bless. They are under a judgment announced by God already that that this Jehoram will be the end of the line. So God is not going to uh, bless them, and they are not going to prosper. And that sort of gives us a, an idea of what will happen at the end of this chapter, that no matter what else takes place, God can't bless Jehoram because he is evil. So that's our first clue in trying to understand what happens at the, at the end of the, at the end of the chapter. But you see what happened with Jeroboam was the same thing that has happened with so many people. He created his own image of God. Remember, uh, Jeroboam, uh, Jeroboam the first was the one who, uh, what led the revolt from the, uh, I'm losing, already losing power was the first one to, let me see if that'll go, yeah, well, until we get power. No, it's a white cord, white cord, white box. No. If it's not there, look on my desk. Otherwise, we'll just shut down. All right. The, um, where was I? That's not going to do any good, so we just won't look at that. Okay. The, what Jeroboam did was that when he led the tax revolt against the, uh, against Rehoboam, because Rehoboam was Solomon's son and Solomon had increased the taxes so egregiously and Rehoboam followed the older counselors and said that, that he would, um, uh, that he would increase taxes as well, that Jeroboam led this tax revolt in the northern kingdom. The ten tribes split off from the southern kingdom. And he realized that if he didn't do something, he was going to have a problem because everybody up in the north was going to be trotting down to the southern kingdom, to Jerusalem, to worship at the temple uh, several times. Did you find it? Nope. Okay. I'll just cut that off then several times during the the year, and this would create a problem of loyalty between the uh, northern kingdom and the, and the southern kingdom, and he really wanted to establish his own separate identity. So what he did was he had two golden calves constructed. He had two golden, ca- uh, two golden calves constructed, and one was set at Bethel, and one was set at, uh, at Dan. And... He said, this is the God who took you out of Egypt. See, that's what he did. He constructs his own view of God, his own idol, and he says, this is Yahweh. See, that's what happens with a lot of people is they construct this image of God in their head, and they say, that's the God of the Bible. It's not the God of the Bible at all. It's just their construct of the God of the Bible because they've got a God that is too small. They haven't spent enough time in the text to really have an accurate view of who God is. Even though we'll never have a comprehensive view, we can have an accurate view. And so when the text says that he uh, persisted in the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, who made Israel sin, what that tells us is he continues in this limited view of God and in this idolatry. 
And so uh, the sin in the north continues. And then we come to the next set of verses, verses 3 through 7, and this identifies for us the problem. Now, every good story has a conflict. Every good narrative has tension in it, and you have to figure out who's the hero and who's the bad guy. Well, in the scriptures, the hero is always who? God. It's always God. God's the hero. The hero's not Elisha. It's not Elijah. It's not Moses. It's always God. God is the hero. And when you look at the conflict that's there, we ought to think of those conflicts in terms of the fact that we, too, have conflicts in our lives. These are problems that we face, and they are facing a problem, and this is a problem related to the nation itself. And so we read in verse 4, Now Misha, the king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel a 100,000 lambs and wool of 100,000 rams. That is an enormous amount of their production. They were probably paying well in excess of 50% of their gross national product to the northern kingdom of Israel. So this was an oppressive uh, tribute upon the, uh, upon the nation. And then verse 5 we read, But it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So this has been going on for a little while. It began under Ahaziah. And it's continuing under Jehoram. And we can infer, although the text doesn't say, that there was probably some negotiations going on that uh, the northern kingdom uh, would send them a collection notice when the uh, tribute was past due, and they would send several collection officers down there to try to, uh, uh, you know, try to intimidate the Moabites that if they didn't do something that uh, Israel would take military action. Well, finally, with Jehoram, uh, on the throne, he takes action. So we read in verse 6 that Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all of Israel. So he's going to invoke the, the uh, military solution, but he knows that he can't do it on his own. So in uh, verse 7 we read, Then he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? So the Jehoram isn't king very long before he realizes he has to do something about this crisis of foreign policy in the north and that he can't allow Misha, who is the king of Moab, to continue to tweak his nose at Israel by not paying the tribute. And so he's going to uh, send the troops down to straighten things out. Now, before we get any further in this, we have to uh, pause a minute to make a couple of important observations uh, related to Moab. First of all, we need to identify uh, Moab and the role of Moab in the history of Israel. Now, we've lost the uh, PowerPoint and the visual, but Moab exists on the on the southeastern flank of Israel, or if you're actually looking at the area on the uh, Transjordan side, they are to the south of that. They are just on the east side of the Dead Sea, part of the modern Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, and they are kind of in the middle there down to the lower uh, edge of the Dead Sea, and then below them you have the kingdom of Edom. 
The Moabites have an important, though checkered, history in relationship to Israel. We know about the origin of Moab because in Genesis 19, verses 37 to 38, we have the record of the incest that was committed by Lot's two daughters with Lot. They decided by that time they weren't ever going to get any husbands, and so they were living in a cave down by the Dead Sea after the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And on separate occasions, they got their father drunk and committed incest with him, and they each became pregnant. The oldest daughter gave birth to a son that she named Moab, uh, which sounds like the Hebrew word, from my father. And the other daughter gave birth to a son she called Ben-Ami, which sounds like the phrase, son of my kinsman. And so those... uh uh, the, the descendants of Moab and Ami or Ammon became the uh, Moabites and the Ammonites. And even that name Ammon is perpetuated today in Ammon, the capital of, uh, of Jordan. So they are uh, cousins to the Israelites. This is why God told Moses or prohibited Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 2, uh, verse 9 and following, that he was not to, they, they were not to attack the Moabites uh, or the Ammonites when they went through their territory as they entered into the land. In Deuteronomy 2.9, the Lord told Moses, Do not harass Moab, nor contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given R to the descendants of Lot as a possession. That's that territory on the southeastern side of the Dead Sea. So the first important fact that we recognize about Moab is Moab is guaranteed by God their own inheritance, their own land, and that Israel has no right to it. What does that tell us? That tells us that the northern kingdom is out of fellowship. They are sinning in their uh, oppression of Moab. Uh, they're out of fellowship and they're in disobedience to God in many other areas, but they just, uh, since the time of Omri, they don't care anything about what uh, God has said, and so they enter into military conflict with the Moabites, defeat them, and oppress them as if they had a right to their production, and they have no right to their production. And so we see f- Uh, right off the bat, that this whole adventure to uh, continue the oppression of Moab is in violation of the will of God. So this is not going to be a uh, a God-honoring endeavor. Now, what we see here, to back off the text just a little bit in terms of application, we see that Jehoram is faced with a problem. We get faced with many different problems, whether you call it problems, whether you call it adversity, challenges, uh, suffering, uh, however you address it. We get faced with uh, disappointments, things that don't go the way we think they should. We face financial challenges or health challenges or family challenges where you have to deal with uh, elderly parents that can't take care of themselves anymore or you have to deal with rebellious uh, adolescent teenagers. You have problems in job challenges. We face a uh, situation in the national economy that is uh, somewhat of a problem, and many people have lost jobs and looking for jobs and are trying to figure out how they're going to make it. Uh, All kinds of problems related to the details of life. And so we have to ask the question, how are we to address 
challenges. How are we to solve problems, biblically speaking? And this goes all the way through the Scripture. Now, Jehoram is the picture of either the unbeliever or the rebellious believer who is not going to solve his problems the way God says, but is going to try to solve his problems from his own energy, from his own resources, from out of his own efforts. And so he tries to solve the problem by seeking the military solution. And the first thing he realizes is he can't do it alone, so he calls on Jehoshaphat in the same way his father had called on Jehoshaphat in an earlier uh, endeavor. Uh, there are many parallels in this chapter to what happened in 1 Kings 22, so just flip back about three or four pages to 1 Kings chapter 22, and I want to focus your attention on the opening, opening verses there. Um, there was a time of a lot of uh, war between Ahab and Syria earlier, fighting over the territory now referred to as the Golan Heights and in that area of the Transjordan. So in the third year, after there had not been any conflict for three years, peace doesn't last long over there, never has, um, it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel. The reason it says went down, he's not going from north to south, but in Israel, up and down have to do with elevation, and Jerusalem is a high point, and Samaria is much lower. So to walk from Jerusalem to Samaria, you have to go downhill, even though you're walking north. So he's walking north, and Jehoshaphat goes down, in elevation to visit the king of Israel in Samaria. And the king of Israel said to his servants, uh, Do you not know that Ramoth and Gilead is ours? But we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. Now notice, the objective in this war is to recover territory that has been given legitimately to Israel by God. It is in their territory. So what they want to do is something that is clearly stated to be God's will. In contrast, in Second Corinthians I mean, Second Kings 3, what they want to do is to oppress territory that God has prohibited them from oppressing. So in First Kings 22, they want to do the right thing. In Second Kings 3, they want to do the wrong thing, wrong objective. And so in verse 4 of First Kings 22, he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are. Remember this phrase, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. It's complete commitment to, uh, to Ahab's uh, plan and agenda. But notice what Jehoshaphat says next. He says, please, in, in verse 5, please inquire for the word of the Lord today. We have a problem. We have an objective that God has promised us, and therefore, before we engage in solving the problem, we have to initially address the Lord. Now, let's see what happens back in 2 Kings 3. 2 Kings 3, look at verse 7. Then he, that is Jehoram, uh, went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? Look at Jehoshaphat's response. And he said, I will go up. I am as you are. My people is your people. My horses is your horses. Same thing. I'm 100% committed to your agenda and to going into, into the battle with you. But notice what he says next. Remember what he said back in 1 Kings 22? He said, is there a prophet 
among us that we can, so we can inquire of the Lord. He begins by saying the first thing we have to do before we solve a problem is we have to take it to the Lord. We have to seek divine guidance. We have to find out what God's will is on this. And the only way we can do this is that we have to go to a prophet to see what God is going to say to us through that prophet. They did not have a completed canon of Scripture at that time. The only way they could know God's specific will for them was to go to the prophet since the canon was not complete and they had limited limited revelation but in second kings 3 jehoshaphat does not say that he's not seeking divine that's not his priority anymore he is falling into the agenda of uh, of jehoram jehoram thinking that well god blessed us the last time he'll do it again this is a trap people often fall into is that we come become too familiar in our relationship to the, with God, and we just sort of assume that God is going to be with us in the same way he has in the past, and the decisions we make are good, and we don't take time to pray about it and to seek the Lord's guidance in his word. And so in verse 8 we read um, that he said, instead of saying, shall we seek the Lord or inquire of the Lord, he says, which way shall we go up? And Jehoram answers, by way of the wilderness of Edom. See, when you're out of fellowship and you're operating on human viewpoint, you often compound bad decisions with more bad decisions. And that's exactly what happens here. He's, he's in disobedience to God. He is in idolatry, number one, worshiping a, an, a, a false god. Uh, secondly, he wants to do something God has expressly prohibited. And third, he is going to make a decision on how to accomplish the goal of solving the problem by choosing bad methodology. He's going to take them through some of the most barren, dry wilderness that you could ever imagine. I mean, you can dig around in that soil forever and not find anything that's growing. And so they're going to get trapped out there after seven days with no water, and they're going to be in a uh, on the verge of a major catastrophe. And so one bad decision often compounds into more bad decisions, and the reason we often get involved in a lot of adversity is simply because uh, we're compounding already bad decisions with more bad decisions, and we're failing to go to the Lord to seek his, his guidance and direction. So what do we learn at this point in terms of how we ought to face challenges and how they failed to face this challenge. They failed to inquire of the Lord. They failed to seek his guidance. Now, that involves prayer, going to the Lord in prayer and in the study of his word. That God, because in prayer, God's just not going to poof, tell you something, because special revelation has ended. God is going to direct you through his, uh, through his word. But Scripture says in Psalm 66:18 that uh, if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. And the word for regard there is the Hebrew word ra'ah, which means to see, to evaluate, to examine. And so if we are involved in self-examination, which is the concept Paul uses in 1 Corinthians, uh, in dealing with the Lord's table, if you don't examine yourself, if we fail, if we are in, in self-examination, we see sin in our life, and we don't confess it, then God's not going to going to listen 
listen to our prayer. God is not going to answer our prayer. God is not going to be directing us because we're not going to be uh, in fellowship. And so this is their first failure. They're out of fellowship. They're in carnality. And they're seeking to do something that God has not authorized. And in fact, they're seeking to do something that God has prohibited. And so God is going to, ultimately, he won't allow them to bring that to fruition. However, when they finally do inquire of the Lord, they're going to receive some grace, not because of of Jehoram, but because of Jehoshaphat. It's grace by association. And because Jehoshaphat is a believer who walks with the Lord, God is going to bless them with a certain level of victory. But we'll get to that and the mechanics of that next time. What I want to focus on now is simply that there are uh, basic ways in which we need to solve problems. First of all, we need to confess our sin. If we are out of fellowship before we can get in fellowship, walk by the Spirit and start truly solving problems in our life by way of the Word of God and and His will, we have to first be in fellowship. Second thing that we see that's involved, that we see in this passage, uh, it's not walking by the Spirit, but it is a faith rest drill. We need to walk by the Spirit, which puts our focus on the Word. But for them, it was faith rest drill. They needed to trust God to give them the victory in the situation. But more than that, they needed to be oriented to God's Word and understand what God's will was. All they had to do was be familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 2, and they would know that what they were attempting to do was wrong. The, pro- the way in which they were going to solve the problem was wrong, and the problem they were going to solve is wrong. Isn't it interesting in comparison and co- contrast with 1 Kings 22, you have one situation where what they want to do is the right thing, but it's done in a wrong way, and so God doesn't give them the victory. Here they want to do the wrong thing in a wrong way, and God's not going to give them the victory. Only a right thing done in a right way is going to give you the victory in terms of your uh, spiritual life. So we have to recognize that the starting point for problem solving is always inquiring of the Lord. And that means, first, we have to be in fellowship. Second, we have to know his word. And third, we have to put it into application in not only what we're doing, but how we're doing it. Now, we'll come back next time, and we'll focus on the rest of this chapter and how God miraculously delivers them, gives them a, the Israelites a partial victory, and why they don't actually win the total uh, war because of their uh, carnality and because of their disobedience to God, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to think through the issues that are going on here in light of what you have previously revealed in your word and in light of uh, your standards for, for Israel. In the same way, you have standards for us in terms of how we live the Christian life. And this begins, first and foremost, with being in fellowship, with the necessity of keeping short accounts through confession of sin, and then following that up with a consistent study, reflection, knowledge of your word, so that what you have revealed is internalized into our thinking, so that we are no longer uh, thinking as the world thinks, but we think as you think. Father, we pray that you challenge each believer here with the application of those principles. And for those who may be here this morning who are unsure of their salvation 
are uncertain of their eternal destiny, that you would make it clear to them that there is grace from you, just as there was grace from you towards the army of Israel in this chapter. And that grace comes at the cross, that Jesus Christ died for their sins. Sin is no longer the issue. It is not what divides them. The issue is their faith in Christ and that they need to put their faith in Jesus Christ because he died on the cross for their sins. He paid the penalty for their sins so that all they need to do is trust in him and they will have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with all the things that we've studied this morning and that God the Holy Spirit would make them applicable in our own thinking and that we would be responsive by applying them in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.